Well, I'm so grateful today for all those who have worked incredibly hard to put together this morning's service. What a wonderful act of remembrance it's been, not only for this Remembrance Sunday, but also to remember loved ones who have passed away, those who we miss and those who we grieve. For those of you I don't know, my name is uh, Chris Brockway. I have the real joy of being involved in the leadership of the church here at CBC. And the absolute privilege this morning to be opening up God's Word as we continue in our sermon series that will take us up to Advent, thinking about dangerous prayers. Well, 2020 has been a year of waiting. In fact, when we look back, I wonder or not whether we'll say 2020 was the year of waiting. And I wonder if during 2020 you found yourself occasionally or even often feeling impatient. Well, let's do a little test, shall we, this morning. Here comes my 10-statement survey to see if you're somebody who lacks patience. Now, if you answer yes to more than three or four of these statements, then I suspect, like me, you have got some issues, which I really hope this sermon today will begin to address. So statement number one, why don't you top these up on your fingers as we go through and you can see how you score. Number one, you sometimes burn your tongue on a bowl of soup because you can't wait to eat it. Number two, the buffering icon on YouTube that I hope you're not seeing this morning or on your computer drives you absolutely insane. Number three, you've tried endless crash diets. Number four, you have an Amazon Prime account. Number five, when driving, you compete with the sat-nav to see whether or not you can shave even just a minute off of your estimated time of arrival. Statement number six, you cannot stand late people. Number seven, you rage silently when the other supermarket checkout line moves way faster than the queue that you're in. Number eight, in your opinion, slow walkers should not be allowed on the pavement. Number nine, when a cleaning supply says leave on the soiled area for 10 minutes to soak, you wait for four minutes before you start scrubbing. And finally, number 10, you manually pop the toast out of the toaster before the toast is actually done. Well, I wonder, how did you score? I'm ashamed to say that I scored 10 out of 10, but you probably knew that would be the case already. All of these things are extracts from my life. Now, though, of course, this test was a bit of fun, I have to confess that my lack of patience in life is not something that I'm particularly proud of, because I know that it's not a Christ-like way of existing. How do I know that? Because patience is listed as being one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Love, joy, peace, patience. There it is, patience, and so the list goes on. You see, I know that the more like Jesus I am, the more I'll be growing in the fruit of the Spirit in all areas, which includes patience. Now, I've been alive long enough now and had enough negative experiences in my life to know that impatience can be costly. Why? Because impatience causes me to act rashly, and I know that in my rashness, it can be incredibly destructive, especially in the area of relationships. Who is it that I'm most often impatient with? Well, it's with the people that I love the most. You know, my patience has never been so tested as when five children over the last 15 years have gradually come to inhabit our home. And maybe you know that to be true in your own life in this way or a different way. 
Perhaps even you have some relational wreckage which was caused by your impatience or perhaps by the impatience of somebody else. Well, it's confession time this morning. I am a regular prayer of today's dangerous prayer, Lord, teach me patience, but do it now. But of course, you can't microwave the the character trait of patience into your life. More often than that, patience comes into our lives via the slow cooker method. Patience and waiting are inseparable bedfellows. But as well as the human relational cost to impatience, I think there's an even greater relational cost. There's a spiritual cost to impatience as well. The more that we live with an inability to tolerate to delay, I think it reveals something to us. And I think it can be incredibly costly in the area of our relationship with God. You see, whenever we're impatient with God, we're effectively saying to God, you know what, Lord, I do not trust your timing. I don't trust your timing. Your timing stinks. Actually, my timing is better. Can you see the seriousness of this kind of attitude in our walk with God? And, you know, over the years, I think I've concluded this about impatience. Impatience is generally, but always and especially towards God, a display of pride. It's a display of pride because what we're doing with our impatience is elevating our understanding. We're elevating our wants above that that our all-knowing God really wants. Oh, dear, this has all become even more serious now, hasn't it? You see, if I struggle with impatience, it's very likely that I'm also struggling with pride in my life. Guilty as charged. Just ask my wife. Impatience and pride are often in an ugly marriage, one with another. You see, the big picture truth is this, is impatience is more costly and even more inconvenient than waiting or being patient. But time waiting is never time wasted in God's economy. One of the primary reasons I think God makes us wait is that he can achieve things in our lives through our waiting that otherwise simply wouldn't happen if we were given things straight away. God always honors our patience and does a good work in us as we wait. Time waiting is never time wasted. Now, I'm starting to feel quite lonely in the the newly formed CBC Impatience Club, so let me quickly try and recruit some additional members. If I was to ask you, who was the most patient person that you know, I wonder what your answer would be. My guess is that you probably would not nominate yourself at this moment. Well, welcome into my club. Come and join it with me. I guess the obvious biblical example of patience, aside from Jesus, of course, is the character of Job in the Old Testament, which is in the first half of our Bibles before the coming of Jesus. People sometimes say, don't uh, don't they, although no one's ever said this to me, you have the patience of Job. You've got the patience of Job. And in a moment, we're going to take a snapshot look at Job's story together. So if you've got a Bible with you, find Job chapter 7. And whilst you're finding the right place, I want to share just a quick bit of context of Job's story. So what do we know about this character, Job? Well, Job was an incredibly wealthy man. He had a large family and he had a massive flock of cattle. It says in the scriptures he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys and a large number of servants. 
Well, it's hard enough looking after five children, let alone a big family. I've got five chickens, or is it four? I can't remember. I can't remember. imagine what it's like to look after all those cattle. But it's a sign of Job's wealth and of his success. The opening words of Job's story in verse 1 say this, This man, Job, was blameless and he was upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. Wow, he was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, and he shunned evil. Oh, that people would describe me in that kind of a way. And then one day, Satan appears before God, and Satan says to God, you know what, God, that Job guy, you know that he's only good because you've blessed him so much. Do you know he only honors you because you've given to him so abundantly? Not so, says God in response. And then God does something absolutely shocking in the story of Job. He gives permission for Satan to torment Job to test out which one of them is right. Will Job dishonor God if Job loses all the things that God has blessed him with? Well, we find out. In the course of just one day, Job loses absolutely everything. He loses his livestock, his servants, his 10 children, and also his good health. You can read about that in Job chapter 1. Well, let's hear how Job responds, shall we? We're, we're going to rejoin the story in a moment in chapter 7, where Job is in mid-discussion with his friends who are trying to console him. In some ways, they don't help him, actually. But for the first seven days when his friends join him, it's really interesting. They sit together and they say nothing. What a great reminder for us of sometimes the best way that we can be with people in their grief is to simply be in their presence and to say nothing. But I think there's maybe something more going on in the saying of nothingness here, which is about Job honoring God as well in this moment. Now, before all that, at the end of chapter two, Job's wife decides she's going to share her heart with Job. And this is what she said. His wife, Job's wife, said to him, are you still... Are you still maintaining your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? In other words, she says to him, Job, give up on your integrity. It's better to be dead than than to live like this. And he replies, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, the scriptures say, Job did not sin in what he said. Well, let's jump right on to chapter 7, shall we, verse 11. It's a remarkable story, which I think challenges the way that many of us might view patience and might come to understand what patience looks like when it's lived out in a person's life. This is chapter 7, reading from verse 11. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and you terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would, I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning." What is mankind that you make so much of them, that you give them so much attention, that you examine them every morning and you test them every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you who sees everything we do? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? 
for I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I shall be no more. Well, many of us live with an assumption in life that good God rewards the good and he punishes the bad. That's exactly what Job's wife believed back there in chapter 7, wasn't it? If something bad happens to you, then you must have done something bad to deserve it. It sounds a little bit like karma to me, that we're ultimately to blame for whatever suffering it is that we encounter in life. And that's an utterly unbiblical assumption. And the book of Job resolutely insists that this is not the case, that karma is not God's idea. Job was blameless. He was upright. He was a good and a faithful man. And yet, some seriously bad stuff is allowed to happen to him. So one of the clear conclusions that we can draw from the book of Job is that people don't always get what they deserve, not even good people. Sometimes good people suffer for what appears to be no good reason. But there's a a second, another common assumption that many people live with, that patience, as most of us understand it, implies just putting up with things. That sense of just waiting and accepting, the idea that we're just going to let things run their course, and if we're patient, then we won't make any kind of a fuss, that we'll bear without complaint. Now, if we'd read only as far as Job chapter 2, I guess we might conclude safely that that was how Job was demonstrating his patience. He was doing it in silence and he was doing it in resignation. He was just grinning and bearing. He was in a state of silent denial that anything bad had actually happened to him. But Job's story doesn't end in chapter 2. It carries on for another 40 chapters. In the New Testament, in the second half of the Bible, the the half of the Bible that speaks about Jesus' coming, Job is held up as a model example of patience by James. And we need to remember this. James didn't only read as far as chapter 2. James had read the whole of Job's story. Well, listen to what James says in chapter 5, verses 10 to 12 of the book of James. He says, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered, or we might say those who have been patient. You've heard of Job's perseverance or his patience, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion, and the Lord is full of mercy. Now, was James picturing here as he wrote all that? Someone who was silent and somebody who was out complaint as he said that Job was a model of patience. I don't think so. As we heard from Job chapter 7, the kinds of patient words that Job spoke, having first sat in silence for seven days, and I imagine in that time he was thinking and he was cogitating, he was seeking to honor God. His words of patience sound more like these. Do you know what, God? I'm not keeping one bit of this quiet. I'm laying all of this on the table. My complaining to high heaven is bitter. Yes, it is. And it's brutally honest. Are you going to put a muzzle on me me, the way you quiet the sea and the way you still the storm? I hate this life, says Job. Who needs any more of this? Now, these are just a few of similar lines spoken by Job in this middle section of the book. And they are typical in their brutal honesty. 
As the story moves along through 42 chapters, Job becomes more and more and more bold, accusing God of piercing him with poison arrows in chapter 6, of crushing him with a storm and multiplying his wounds without cause in chapter 9, of hunting him down like a lion in chapter 10, of breaking him down on every side in chapter 19. Now, these don't sound like the words of a patient man, do they? As many of us would understand patience is supposed to look like. And Job complains like this for some 30 chapters with some of the strongest language that you will find in the Bible as people address God. But still, James in the New Testament holds Job up as a model of a patient man. And Job had read beyond chapter 2. Now, if, like me, you were familiar with this New Testament evaluation of Job long before you ever encountered the words of Job himself in the Old Testament, you might well find yourself imagining a silent and a stoic, a calm man as you read about him and read his account in the Old Testament. In the Greek, the word that James uses to describe Job means something like standing fast or holding one's ground or firm endurance. These are really strong words, aren't they? They're almost combative words to express what patience is. Hanging in there, yes, absolutely. Hanging in there with God despite it all, yes, of course. But not necessarily bearing silently and without complaint. Job bore his his sufferings, yes. He endured, yes, he did. He persisted in his integrity as best a broken person could, yes, he did. But he was brutally honest with God and he wore his heart on his sleeve. He was honest and brutally um, candid with his friends as well about how miserable he was and how difficult his situation was. But it seems to me that James did not therefore me uh, come to think that Job was not a patient person. Of course, Job was not patient in the sense of passively sitting by and letting things happen to him as if he were somehow tolerating it all with a gentle evangelical smile. Far from it. But Job actually was being patient as he stood before God with his fists held high as he, demand, as he demanded justice and fairness. And he said to God, these are the standards of justice you've demanded for me, and I demand these back of you, God. James did not think that Job was utterly blaspheming or saying things that ought not to be said to God. In fact, Job was simply standing on sound and solid biblical tradition that went before him. You see, elsewhere in the Old Testament, in the book of Lamentations, for example, but particularly in many of the Psalms that we will have read, people of strong faith and conviction wrestled and struggled with God. They spoke out of their experience of suffering. They cried out in pain and they expected that God would honor their honesty that God could handle their complaints, that God was big enough and that he would respond. Now, all of that did not necessarily make them impatient. And I've wrestled with a question for myself this week. Well, what does patience look like? But perhaps that is what patience looks like in difficult time. Patience isn't always silent. And I just wonder as a point of application for some of us this morning, whether some of us need to own that and honor that and say it's okay not to be silent before God as we confront COVID-19. You know, it's been a long wait through this year, hasn't it? And we've got yet more waiting still to come as we enter into next year. And the truth is this whole journey has been pretty tough for us. 
And my sense from this story this morning is that we don't need to live in denial that it's been anything else but challenging. There's an encouragement, I think, to tell God about it and to tell God about this circumstance with honesty. But I wonder, too, for some of us, whether we need to know this truth that we don't always have to express patience in silence when it comes to some of our personal health challenges. We don't need to pretend before God that everything is okay when actually life is pretty miserable. Tell God about it. I wonder whether or not you need to know this reality as you struggle with relationship difficulties. Do you know there can be little less hurtful than uh, a relationship challenge? I sense that we should be confessing our failings, that we should be naming to before God how we feel we've been failed. I would encourage you, tell God about your circumstance honestly, because the truth is he can handle it. I wonder if you need to know in some area of injustice in your life, or maybe as you look at the injustice of the world, that God is okay for you not to sugarcoat the situation, to sugarcoat your frustration and your sense of loss. It's okay to speak to God honestly and to speak to him candidly. You see, I don't think that biblical patience requires us to be dishonest or in denial about the fact that sometimes life stinks. And sometimes life stinks for no good reason. But biblical patience, it seems to me, has room for that long lost art of communication that we used to call lament. It's a long lost art. Biblical patience endures, yes it does, but not necessarily silently. It's okay to express your frustration and your disappointment in God-honoring ways. Don't miss that bit, in God-honoring ways. Biblical patience does not give up on God at the first hurdle. Yes, it endures. Biblical patience doesn't fly off the handle at the first opportunity. I honor that in Job. He stayed silent for seven days before he said a word to God or to anybody else. But then he went for it, partly, of course, provoked by his annoying friends. It's okay to engage in the long-lost art of lament, which is quite different from bog-standard complaining and whinging and moaning. You see, lament expresses a deep sorrow. Lament expresses the depth of our heartbreak. And lament urges for God to intervene. Lament actually is a way of expressing our hearts to God whilst honouring him. Now, we do need to be very careful in all this, don't we, that we don't cross that really thin line between a God-honoring response and one that is dishonoring to God. Did Job cross the line as you read his bigger story? Did Job dishonor God by muddling up lament and complaint? Did Job sin during his time of waiting? Well, yes, he did. But, and here's the crucial element, I think, which is such a significant ingredient of us living patiently. When we do sin, when we do get it wrong, when our lamenting turns into complaining or when we start to respond to God in a dishonoring way, there's a challenge. And the challenge is for us to repent quickly and to do it deeply, not superficially, superficially but with a depth of, of, of sorriness and with a, a depth of sincerity. That's exactly what Job did. If you read the rest of his story, you'll see that. And what did Job discover as he repented? As soon as he discovered things had gone wrong, he discovered God's grace and he discovered God's mercy and he discovered God's compassion. And the promise of God's grace is there for us too when we muck it up and when we get it wrong. 
Job tells God that God is being unjust. And it's really significant that when God finally does speak, God simply reminds Job that he knows the much bigger picture. There's a story that Job didn't know or Job didn't understand. And I think God understood that and he expresses that in grace back to Job. But significantly, Job repents and he does so with a deep repentance. I wonder what 2020 has been like for you. You know, for me, COVID restrictions press all the wrong buttons in my life. You see, I've discovered that this season that we're in demands patience, and it's not something I have a huge amount of, and I've been finding it deeply frustrating. God knows that. I told him. Of course, God knew that before I told him, so that's the reason why we don't need to be dishonest in our response to God. But in all this waiting, in all this frustration during 2020, God has continued to do a good work in me that he began all those years ago when I first came to faith. And the truth is, he's not yet finished. And for as long as I live on this earthly life, he won't be finished. And I've discovered something else as well this year, that when I get it wrong, and I have, I'm discovering afresh just how amazing God's grace is in my life. That God's grace is sufficient, that God does indeed love to lavish his mercy and his grace upon me when I come to him in repentance. The same can be true for you. Times of ill health or in myself or in my family, push all the wrong buttons on me too. Maybe you've discovered that to be true in your life. Seasons like this demand so much patience and they can be incredibly frustrating. God knows that. God understands that. And if you find yourself in that place, would you please tell him? Don't sugarcoat your situation to God or to everybody else. Don't live in denial that everything's okay when the truth is it's really quite tough. Maybe it's time to do away with the evangelical I'm fine mask. Tell him. Tell him with honesty. I wonder if you need to know some patience as you confront COVID. I wonder if you need to know some patience in your life as you wrestle with your health or with injustice or with relational challenges that you're involved in. If you need to know patience, well, where are you going to get it from? Well, let me tell you this. You're not going to find it in Tesco's. We get it, or should I say we learn it from God. You see, patience is one of the fruit of his spirit. And the fruit of the spirit grow in the soil of faith. And the first thing I'd want us to know this morning is that we need to hang on in there in faith as God continues to nurture this fruit of patience within us. Patience grows in the faith that God uses even the most frustrating of circumstances and struggles in this life to make us more like Jesus. It's trusting in God's timing. It's the knowledge that whereas we tend to look at the clock, God looks at the calendar. He knows so much more of our situation than we do. Patience comes from the belief that God, what God does in us while we wait is just as important as the thing that we are waiting for. Patience is rooted in the word of God where it says perseverance does indeed produce character and character produces hope in Romans chapter 5. From Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 where it says God really does make all things beautiful in his time. 
And as James says at the very beginning of his book, when we face trials, we must be patient and consider it pure joy because we know that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And when perseverance finishes its work, we will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, we'll be more like Jesus as we wrestle with patience and impatience. Basically, patience comes from the faith that waiting through tough times can indeed be good for us and that waiting is not wasted time. But in a sense, all of that is just the topsoil. Actually, I think our faith goes much deeper than just our earthly existence. There's a much richer, there's a much deeper soil than just the faith that God is working in the here and now, in the present, important as that is, and I don't want to minimize that. But the deeper sense of faith, the richer soil, is found in that sense that the caliber of our faith looks towards the future. It's a faith that says one day life with all of its frustrations and all of its fears will end and God will one day take me home. It's that sure hope that fertilizes our patience. It keeps us going because we know that we're going somewhere and that one day God is going to finish the good work that he's begun in us. And, you know, that's why as I think of my good friend Gordon Tuck, yes, I feel sadness, but actually I have a hope beyond this earthly life that God is now finished and is finishing the good work that he began in Gordon. You see, that's a hope that's an eternal hope. That's a hope that enables me to live today in the sure knowledge that even if things aren't worked out here on planet Earth, one day all things will be made right. We will one day go home to a place where there's no sorrow, where there's no fear, where there's no sickness and there's no death. One day I'm going to find myself in a place, praise God, where I don't need patience anymore. And it's into that eternal perspective that James in James chapter 5 is writing as he commends the patience of Job. And as I finish, I simply want to read a few chunks of James's letter to us and then I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray that God would teach us patience in the areas where we need to experience patience today. And that will be different for each one of us. James says this in verses 7 to 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and for the spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. The Lord's coming is near. One day justice will be done. One day this earth will be made right and everything will be good. Take that as an encouragement. But then James goes on in verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. A challenge not to complain and to grumble and to whinge and moan about our circumstance. But you'll notice James does not exclude the place of lament. And we need to know that when we cross that line between whinging and lament, between lament and whinging, when we get it wrong, it's okay to repent quickly and to repent sincerely. And God's grace will always be lavished upon us. And then James goes on in verses 10 to 11. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord As you know, we count it as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and of mercy. Let me encourage you, let me challenge you to allow the example of patient people 
those who have gone before us and those who live around us to inspire you. Let the example of these people be lead you to the constant cry of your heart that says, Lord, teach me patience. Lord, I believe that you've filled me with your spirit, that your seed of your spirit is within me. Now, Lord, would you fill me so that I'll become more like Jesus as the fruit of the spirit are expressed. I wonder where are the places where you are praying today, Lord, teach me patience. It's a dangerous prayer because the minute we pray, Lord, teach me patience, we can guarantee that that patience is going to be tested. And it's at that point we need to say, Holy Spirit, I can't do this walk of faith on my own. I need you and I need you to fill me. And it's in that place I want us to pray this morning. Whichever area of patience you're wrestling with today, let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Do a new and do a fresh work within me. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord, in those areas where we are wrestling today. It's a struggle. And Lord, sometimes we get it horribly wrong. Lord, where we see impatience and we long to see patience, we simply pray over those things. Holy Spirit, come. Just sense even as we're still now in the place where we gather, just God is just longing to fill us this morning with his spirit. We leak him and we need to be filled. And maybe just this morning you want to receive from God in those areas. Why don't you just hold out your hands ready to receive the gift that he loves to give. That he would grow the fruit of the spirit in his life, including patience. Lord, teach me patience. And Lord, as you teach me, equip me and gift me, fill me with your spirit, that I, that we, might honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.